My name is Roger Clark, and I'm your host today on this episode of the Fourscore and Seven Project. We're focusing our discussion today on Texas versus California. Think of it this way. If this was a professional boxing match, we'd have in this corner, in the blue trunks, California with weighing in at 40 million people with a reach of the fifth largest economy in the world. In this corner here, in the red trunks, we have Texas weighing in at 30 million people with a reach of the ninth largest economy in the world. We are very fortunate to have the gentleman who literally wrote the book called Texas versus California. Professor Ken Miller, the Rose Professor at the Rose Institute at Claremont McKenna. Welcome. We're very happy to have you here. Thank you, Roger. It's a pleasure to be here. You have a uh, JD and Doctorate of Jurisprudence from um, Harvard, I believe. Uh, and you have a, a PhD in uh, uh, political science, I believe, from um, Berkeley. That's right. Berkeley. Um, and then we should also mention that you have your bachelor's uh, from Pomona. So uh, uh, you kind of have returned home, uh, so to speak, to, to where you began. Um, so, Professor, uh, uh, you are a unique position uh, besides not only educational uh, background, but in terms of personal and family life. Uh, I believe you are a fifth-generation Californian, uh, and you are married to a lady uh, from Texas who has very, very, very deep Texas roots. Uh, who has apparently taught you how to do the two-step. That's right. Okay, was, well, well, good. You're the man. It's essential uh, in order to be married to my wife to learn the two-step. Well, right. we clearly have the right Professor Miller. Uh, <laughs> so, so, and again, welcome. So Texas versus California. Um, you, you made a statement in the book, if uh, <clears throat> you bear with me for one moment. I just want to quote it. You wrote that the nation polarization continues because a strong case for both conservative and progressive pursuits represented by uh, Texas, which represents the red, conservative. California represents the blue, the progressive. And you said both make a credible claim for a hold on the political life of this country because each presents a vi viable economic, social, and political model, I believe. With that as a starting point, um, you talk about Texas and California being sibling rivals. Um, you're going to have to explain that. I'll start with the similarities, and then we can talk about some of the differences. So the, the metaphor of siblings uh, comes to mind because these, these two states we, that we think of as being absolute polar opposites in our political life today, which they are, actually have a lot of similarities. And I, I tease that out in the book, but um, the similarities begin with origins, that both of these states were originally um, in the modern period part of Spain and then later Mexico. They were both targets of westward expansion by Americans moving west in the 19th century. Uh, they were both colonized essentially by Americans in the 1820s forward. Uh, they both joined the Union uh, in 
very close proximity, Texas 1845, California 1850, um, in connection with the conflict with Mexico, uh, the the Mexican-American War uh, during that period. Um, And they were both high growth states throughout their history. And that's um, changing in California today, which we can get into later. But throughout their history, California and Texas have been have been a magnet for people from across the United States and around the world uh, to grow to, as you mentioned, the the two largest states in the union, both in terms of population and economy. Um, Other similarities are both border states, so they have strong connection still with Mexico and Hispanic influence in in both states. Uh, So they're both border states and Sunbelt, southwestern states. Uh, they, they both have very diverse population. There weren't one of a handful or two of a handful of states in the United States where uh, whites are not in the majority in these states. They both have identical percentage of Hispanic population. Uh, as of the most recent census estimates, 40.2% of the population of Texas is Hispanic. 40.2% of the population of California is Hispanic. Um, and so they're, they're very... Uh, ethnically, racially, culturally diverse places. Um, And then I think maybe most surprisingly to a lot of people, uh, these two states have had a history of overlapping politics. So the the statistic I like to share with folks is that um, between 1928 and 1988, that was 16 presidential elections between 28 and 88, California and Texas voted for the same candidate in 13 out of those 16 elections. Seven times for the Republican presidential candidate, six times for the Democratic presidential candidate. So during much of the 20th century, these two states were um, overlapping politically. And if you dig deeper, California was a Republican state and Texas was the Democratic state, right? Back at a time when uh, the Southern part of this country was Democratic, although albeit, uh, conservative Democratic, uh, and there was a Republican party in this country that was uh, sort of moderate progressive, and that was what California represented, um, sort of a moderate pr- uh, Republicanism. And so um, it's a very interesting relationship between these two uh, states that goes very deep in terms of the connection and the overlap, and it's really only been within the last generation that these two states have polarized in the way that they have. Roughly a generation being about 25 years? 25 years or so. So I would say from the 19, it began sort of in the 1990s forward that Texas moved decisively uh, to realign from the Democratic Party into the Republican Party, as did much of the Southern region of the United States. And California moved decisively from sort of being a competitive two-party state throughout, uh, up until, the mid-1990s into being, in this century, an overwhelmingly democratic state, as did, um, interestingly, quite a few other states in the United States, in the West Coast, Oregon, Washington, uh, New England, uh, Illinois, probably the closest um, analog to, to California politically is the state of Illinois, actually. So we've seen a bunch of states sort of separate out into these two camps. Um, the red camp, the blue camp, and California and Texas are representatives of that sorting politically, nationally. And so they have become rivals or siblings, mm-hmm. but now they are absolutely rivals for 
uh, competing for the future of this country. Which of these two models, as you say, is going to be dominant? And um, so I guess to the other point, uh, both of these models have you know reasons behind them and both tap into different elements of the American political tradition. There is a strong sort of conservative um, uh, traditionalistic element in our um, political culture and there's also sort of an element that's driven for uh, political reform and change uh, which more represents the sort of progressive element and these two states represent those those two um, uh, uh, ways of thinking. So, so the obvious question, Professor, yeah. is, is what the hell happened? Uh, so, so you have states that seem to be in lockstep in so many ways. Uh, and over the last 25 years, uh, one has gone red yeah. and the other is blue. Um, I guess the, maybe the first question I should ask is uh, how much time do we have today to answer <laughs> that question? But um, yeah, a, a, a good summary uh, would, would be what? Yeah, so I, I spent the first half of the book, <laughs> I think six or seven chapters, trying to explain how California became blue and how Texas became red. And I point to uh, a number of different factors, and they're all sort of uh, related to the overall realignment and, and polarization of the United States um, as our politics have evolved over time. So. Some of the things I, I point to is origins. So even though, as I've um, said, California and Texas had a lot of commonalities in their origins, there was one critical difference, which was uh, California aligned with the North in this, the sectional crisis and the Civil War and Reconstruction, and Texas aligned with the South. And so that had long-term implications for their political development. Um, History has a long uh, memory, doesn't it? It does, uh, yeah. And so the North, if, if, you, if you think about where's our political divide in the nation, just sort of in broad, rough terms, the conservative element of our, the most conservative region of the country is the South. And it has always been more politically conser conservative. It has a political underlying conservative political culture that for much of its history, most of its history was aligned as a faction within the Democratic Party. Yep. And there's historical reasons for that. Uh, California aligned with the North, which was historically Republican. Uh, all of Abraham Lincoln's electoral votes in 1860 came from the North. He got none from the South, right? Um, right. And so the Republican Party was a regional party born in the North. And that was uh, true for almost a century thereafter, there, were, there was no Republican Party to speak of in the South, right? But as um, issues uh, developed over time, as there were developments within the Democratic Party to sort of embrace a, a new set of issues, whether it's civil rights or a more sort of um, <clears throat> progressive view on a lot of social issues, um, on uh, foreign affairs, defense, military issues, it became more the pacifist party, where the Republican Party was more uh, internationalist and strong uh, for a strong military. The South increasingly felt like it didn't fit in the Democratic Party anymore. Mm -hmm. And so there was this sort of um, shift. It was, it was very difficult psychologically, really, for the South to, to embrace the Republican Party, which had always been the party of, party of Lincoln, the party of Lincoln, sure. the party of you know Reconstruction and Northern aggression and all of that. Mm -hmm. But of, it, it took 
generation basically for for them to. to just just a footnote. Uh, yeah. I, I can tell you're a uh, fan of Mr. Lincoln uh, uh, because you have a number of quotes uh, <laughs> from the House Divided speech and also from the first inaugural. I believe maybe we'll get to those. Yeah, I'm absolutely. About, a, a, yes. He's a hero of mine. It, it sure. is somewhat of an irony that this uh, program is called the Four Score and Seven Project, right. which is other another Lincoln reference. <laughs> absolutely. Course, so yeah, you you can get me talking about Abraham Lincoln. I'd be happy to do that. Um, <laughs> So, um, yeah, so the South is moving for rational reasons out of the Democratic Party because it it's just hasn't been a great fit from the, the mid-20th century forward. And California, which was part of the Republican Party, uh, as the, the Republican Party became more conservative and oriented toward the South, it was feeling sort of a, uh, not, it wasn't a good fit for California easily to be in the Republican Party because it was naturally more sort of at least moderate and somewhat progressive than what the Republican Party was increasingly becoming. Well, also, you mentioned uh, in the book also, uh, obviously, Donald Trump is, uh, has a huge presence in national politics and the Republican Party. Um, but you made the point that Donald Trump, unlike many other portions of the country, uh, doesn't have a lot of traction in California. Um, in fact, it may be the reverse in California. Uh, uh, could you explain why? Yeah, so I, I would say it's 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 partly partly demographic, partly economic, partly, um, and I think probably most importantly, the political culture of the state, which is um, the the Republicans that were popular in California were Republicans that appealed to the growing middle class, suburbia, um, largely educated professional mm. Californians, and um, not so much sort of the, the core base of uh, the, the Trump coalition, mm. which is working class, um, non-college educated, mostly white, but not exclusively white folks. And so that population, which was never sort of dominant in California anyway, uh, to the extent that they have been here, are. That's, that's the people who tend to be moving out of state uh, to other places, the, the, the crowded out um, working class, middle class, white population has, um, has diminished in California as a percentage of the whole. Well, the, the, the group that you identified as uh, the core of the Trump supporters sounds like to me that's almost the old Democrat that's right. coalition. That's right. So working class, uh, uh, blue collar, uh, white, uh, working class people uh, historically have been aligned with the Democratic Party because the the division between the parties tended to be over economics. Right. And so the Democratic Party promised sort of more programs, more economic support. Uh, it was the working man's party. And increasingly, that's not the division between our political parties today. More, it's it tends to be more around right. social and cultural issues. Yeah. And the white working class just doesn't align with the modern Democratic Party on a lot of these issues. Well, if I can quote Bob Dylan uh, and not get sued for any type of copyright infringement, uh, things have been a changing, uh, obviously, uh, in, a, in a very major way. Uh, and, and you know, we, we, we throw out red and blue um, casually, and uh, uh, most of us identified strictly as a political red being Republican, blue Democrat. But, but my sense is, is that it's far deeper than that. Um, you, you just brought up the point that politics used to be driven primarily by economics, but now it's driven by a lot of other issues. Uh, so when we talk about red versus blue, 
Um, it's much deeper to me than politics or much broader than, than just a political affiliation. Is that a fair observation? No, I, I think that's right. I think uh, the, the red team, if you want to think about it, that is, is not just concerned about politics or concerned about um, the direction of the country. And the same thing could be said about the blue team. They have increasingly divergent um, and um, opposite visions for what the country can and should become. Um, and progressives, have a, they have a critique of um, a lot of the um, inequalities and um, injustices of what they see as um, being part of the American legacy and tradition. And so their vision is to, to change America in, in a way that would more closely align with their progressive values. And at the same time, Conservatives uh, have a deeper attachment to the America of the past and of the traditions. And so they're very uh, concerned about um, undermining or changing the traditional understanding of what the culture and the, and the uh, purpose of this country is. And so it goes beyond just elections. And elections are seen, I think, in an almost existential way because it's feared by both sides that if the other side gains control a power in Washington D.C. and in the states, then it's going to change the country in a way that threatens their their vision of of the good. Well, you know, another another terms always are mentioned, uh, but they get to the point where I'm, we kind of lose the feel for what the definition is, which is conservative versus progressive, and and uh, uh, you know, I was in Boston uh, a few years ago. Uh, I have a son who went to Boston College, so we were, I believe it was outside the, the, the city hall, and uh, there is a statue out there uh, with uh, an inscription, and it, I think the statue, I'm gonna get this wrong because I'm vaguely recalling it, but what I recall is, is that it was a conservative um, that was standing hands out against the weight of humanity, and the mm -hmm. line was, uh, conservatives uh, standing against progress or mm. something like yeah. that. Uh, I kind of ask that as a preface. Uh, are conservatives always just, no, I don't want to change, let's keep it the way it is, or are they, are they uh, different, broader? Well, I mean, it depends on the conservative and on the issue. I mean, yeah. if, uh, I think there is a trait within conservatism to want to conserve, which means to, to resist change that they think is a change for the worse. I mean, I, it's, it's partly a view of change. Right. I think progressives almost want change for its own sake, <laughs> mm -hmm. believing that the, mm -hmm. the existing order is fundamentally flawed and needs to be reformed and changed. And right. as I say, conservatives have a deeper appreciation for the existing order and want to conserve more of it. That being said, conservatives, if you take an example like Ronald Reagan, uh, was very much a change agent in um, American history, that he believed that the, the country had adopted some right. policies um, that during the New Deal and the Great Society and thereafter that needed to be undone or, or reversed or curbed. And so he, uh, he was, you know, advocating a different way. And so it's not just uh, always saying no, it's sometimes saying yes to a, a, a vision that more closely aligns with, with um, one's view of what America should be? Well, I, I suppose there's no perfect answer. Uh, you know, it kind of reminds me of uh, um, 
Jan the month of January. Now, where I'm going with this is January is named after the Roman god Janus, uh, which was a god that was a double-headed god looking forward and looking uh, to the back, uh, which I think was uh, the beginning of the year on the Roman calendar, and they were trying to indicate that uh, the best of both worlds would be uh, people and politics and society that could uh, both have an eye on the hill up ahead as well as an eye on the hill that they just came over. Um, but I'm not sure that uh, the way we deal with progressives and conservatives today that either group would fall within the category of a Janus category. Is that uh, fair? No, I mean, I, I don't think it's... <laughs> I, I, I don't think that we have um, people really engaged in serious political philosophy uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, or um, reasoned view of uh, the direction the country should go. Increasing that we've got is... A situation where there's neg what we call negative polarization, where um, both sides instinctively, reactively will take a position that's opposite of the other party. Um, even if if they stood back and really thought um, for a moment about right. you know what the policy actually entails, uh, then they might actually you know in principle be okay with some elements of that policy. If it's proposed by the other side, then there's just kind of like this negative um, immediate reaction to that. So th that's that's the nature of our politics, unfortunately, is, is it's uh, increasingly reactive and polarized in that way. Um, sounds increasingly emotional as opposed to logical, too. Yeah, it's, it's emotional, visceral, I would mm -hmm. say. Um, and it has almost a, a, a quasi religious component to it, I would say, for both sides, that uh, there's a totalizing aspect of one's approach to politics, um, where one believes that um, the, the political camp or party uh, has, you know, one is more closely aligned with that because of this, this kind of close connection. I mean, when one hears these kind of jokes about how um, in the past, parents might be um, concerned about their child marrying outside of the religion or right, outside of right. their race or whatever. And now yeah. increasingly parents are more concerned about their children marrying outside of their the, the, the political politics. party or identity, <laughs> right? And, and so th that's why I think, I mean, it, it really has become this, this, this visceral connection that people have to politics in our country. Well, looking at a, you know, even a broader sweep, um, it's almost like we're the reverse of where our founders were famously um, the period of the Enlightenment and, and which was uh, so what, what was kind of an outgrowth it seems to me of Descartes and the scientific method at least in the political social scene is is that you propose the hypothesis and you test it if it's wrong you try you revise the hypothesis uh, I, I think as I understood what you just described that's not where we are anymore because uh, you may propose the hypothesis and the other side is is going to instinctively reject it without testing it. Are we dumbing down as a society? I don't know if that's a fair question or not, yeah. but that's the first phrase, phrase that jumps <laughs> in my mind. Yeah. Because if you, if you don't take an analytical, ask the hard question whether you like the answer or not, um, and you just instinctively want to uh, keep... Uh, your eye on the road to the head with blinders on, not looking either to the left or the right, uh, 
it seems to me that uh, that's not the best course to pursue. Yeah, I, pursuing. I, I think it's, it's fair to say that our, our political leadership and our political culture in the country today is not the best it's ever been. Um, yeah. One of the things that I and my colleagues like to do um, in our classes in Claremont is to assign the Federalist Papers. Yeah. And that's, that's a very high level uh, explanation of our system of government, of the, right. of the theory underlying the Constitution. There was actually a very high-level debate between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists over whether this was the direction to go, whether it was faithful to the revolution, was it whether it was constructing a government that would preserve liberty and and advance the the interests of the country. And you know, this has famously been given a little bit more um, uh, notoriety through uh, the, the musical Hamilton, where there's a reference to the, the Federalist Papers. Uh, and so which, the, which and, by the way, my wife and I just saw that in London, oh, of all places. Fantastic. First right? time we saw it, and uh, we were forewarned, um, let me know how uh, the British crowd in London receives the betrayal, mm -hmm. portrayal of King George, King George III. Right? <laughs> and the portrayal of King George III, which is basically a Benny Hill, the old <laughs> British comedian, was very well received warmly received by the folks in the audience so that's that's good but. to hear <laughs> have a good good humor about it right good humor yes. yeah well uh, i mean just to say hamilton madison adams uh you go through uh, franklin jefferson you go through the list of these these founders and it's remarkable the high quality of their intellect their their love of country uh their their vision for the future and at the same time if you look at the election of 1800 and what transpired right. around there, there was partisanship. They had deep uh, division and debate. So it's not just that there was no parties, no partisanship uh, in that generation. There was, but um, all of them, I think, uh, elevated the quality of political discourse um, to a level that we're not seeing today by either party, I would say. Right. Um well, I just can't resist asking the question, is there a, this probably is a, a graduate level course to mm -hmm. research this, but why? why? What's happening to us? Uh, you know, we're, we're, a lot of people go to college, uh, a lot of people get graduate degrees, uh, a lot of people are well read, uh, but it seems like uh, we, 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 at least as a whole, politically, uh, we're nowhere near on par with that early generation. Yeah, I, it's it's a sad commentary on the yeah. on the culture. I, I do think that uh, the incentives don't really pull um, some of the best people into political life, mm. um, and especially uh, at the highest levels. It's it's very the, the sacrifices, the personal sacrifices uh, to go into those high levels of, of, of politics, and I think it it draws maybe a personality type that's. Right that uh, is, is drawn to sort of, um, you know, the, the kind of political culture that we have today, uh, and maybe not the more philosophical, intellectual types that have flourished in American politics in earlier generations. Interesting. You know, there, there is a, I suppose at a certain level, we get the political leaders that we deserve. Uh, yeah. uh, but I guess underlying um, what, what you just said is that uh, we've made holding uh, um, political office uh, undesirable for many people, uh, maybe because it's financial, you have to raise so much money right. to campaign, or because of all the vitriol 
uh, that they have to sustain as candidates yeah. and, and elected officers. I mean, you, you think about the, the branch of our government that's supposed to be farthest removed from politics. It's the judiciary and the right. Supreme Court. And you think about what the confirmation battles are like yeah. for a lot of the people who are nominated that court. I mean, who, 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 who wants to be nominated? I mean, yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the personal exposure of not just yourself, but your family to right. uh, the, the very partisan attacks. And it's so that's sort of an example of how the coarsening of politics, I think, makes it difficult for a lot of very good people to want to say, I, I'm ready to sign up for that. So, uh, of course, Americans were all famously uh, 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 centered uh, on North American uh, U.S. culture, society, politics, sure. uh, and we very rarely venture outside our own borders to get a comparison to what's going on in the rest of the world. But um, what, is what we're talking about uh, occurring elsewhere in Europe and other places where there's representative uh, democracy? Yeah, so I, I can't claim to be a... a an expert in terms of uh, the, the politics of other countries. I'm not a comparativist, but right. just as a consumer of, of news, it, right. it, it, it is clear that there has been a, a coarsening of politics, uh, at least throughout the West, um, right. the, the rise of populist movements and, and such. And so it's, it's not just a U.S. only phenomenon, I would say, um, but I would venture to guess that the United States is leading the league in, uh, in, in course politics, right? Not necessarily a category we want to be number one <laughs> in, right. but, but we have the distinction. So I was always taught, uh, you know, follow the money, follow the money, and, mm -hmm. and uh, meaning that if you want to get the explanation for motivations, just, you know, you know follow the money. And um, when it comes to politics, uh, my first instinct is, well, why is one place red, another place blue? And I tell myself uh, in my inner voice, we'll, we'll follow the money. You know, mm -hmm. what's the economy doing? Sure. Uh, who's employed? Uh, uh, you know, and what, what traits and attributes that particular um, economy bring with it? And, but, uh, you know, as I say that, I'm, I'm not so sure that it explains um, everything because I get a sense there's a deeper ideology at play that in some ways may be resistant to the follow the money um, explanation. Yes, follow the money is part of it, but um, it, it's almost, uh, you know, you could tell the, the folks in the Soviet Union, uh, you know, for decades that they're not doing well economically compared to a capitalist economy, but until the sky was about ready to fall, no one was ready to, to change how they approached uh, uh, their, uh, their, econ their planned economy. Um, so uh, here, uh, do, you, do you have a sense on you know, when we talk about the red-blue divide, yeah. is it just economies that are doing this, or is it a lot more that's going on? Well, I would, I would say ultimately it's probably the political culture, the ideology that's the dominant factor. But um, I, I, I do think that economics plays a role in um, understanding our red-blue divide. So if you, if you just compare California and Texas, uh, Texas thrives on a couple of things. One is uh, exploiting natural resources. It's the biggest energy mm -hmm. producing state in the country. And it's, it's oil and gas, as everybody knows. There's right. a, a fracking was invented in, yeah. in Texas and it led to this enormous explosion in the productivity of oil and natural gas in the United States. Um, the refineries are in Texas. So that is a central part of the, the Texas economy. That's one thing. The other thing is low cost. 
what Texas can offer uh, businesses mm -hmm. uh, that are looking for cutting costs is that if you bring your business to Texas, uh, we'll have lower taxes, lighter regulations, lower labor costs. You can um, be more profitable in this environment. Does Texas make that promise, but does Texas deliver? Absolutely, it does deliver on that promise. Mm -hmm. the, 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 the tax structure, the regulatory structure, yeah. the labor costs, the land, cost of land, all of that is cheaper in, in Texas than in blue states. And so that's why you see a Charles Schwab or a Toyota USA, or a lot of these companies that have moved, picked up from California, other places to Texas and other red states, that's why. It's not because the weather's better in Texas. It's not because um, the cultural amenities are better in Texas. It's because it's it's cheaper. It's more cost effective. And so, uh, if you if you look at Texas, the the economic foundation underpinning of that state is resources, uh, being willing to and encouraging um, the continued use of fossil fuels, mm -hmm. as well as a broader sort of ec uh, energy mm -hmm. um, economy, and then the low cost of doing business. Those align with conservative or Republican policies, mm. right? Mm -hmm. On the other hand, California has aligned its economy in a way that is more sort of suited for a progressive uh, political structure. So what do I mean by that? California, a half century and more ago, was a big manufacturing economy. There were auto plants and, mm. and defense plants and all of that throughout sure. uh, the state. Um, Auto manufacturing gone, for the most part, from California. Other heavy manufacturing gone. The aerospace industry largely gone. Uh, and so what's replaced it? What's replaced it has is largely trade, and so logistics around the port of Los Angeles and Long Beach, but also, um, more importantly, the, the tech industry and Silicon Valley, which is the driver, the absolute driver of California's on GDP, its economic prosperity, its revenues to the state. And and that sector, the tech sector, is more aligned with the Democratic Party and progressive policies than, say, the oil industry is, right? And so right. there's a closer fit economically between the California model economically and politically on the progressive side and the Texas model politically and economically on was, the red side. Well, was the California manufacturing base um, driven out of the state by California regulations and laws? Uh, partly that. Um, so just to take one example is labor costs. Right. Okay, so um, the nation is pretty evenly divided between states that have pro-union, um, uh, pro-organized labor state-level right. laws, so um, that mandate um, you know, unionization and, and such, and states that are called right to work mm -hmm. states or open shop states. And it, it's, meaning, meaning you don't have to be a You don't have to be a member of a union in order to, to work. And the, and the law right. prohibits um, various forms of labor practices that would right. force people into those situations. Um, similarly, on, on the public sector side, California and other blue states absolutely encourage uh, public sector unionizations. Red states don't. And there's, there's a very close tight connection between blue states and unionization, red states and, and non-unionization. And so uh, that's that's one way in which um, the economic system lines up closely with the political system uh, in states throughout the country. Mm. Um, 
I do want to come back to the public employee union issue. Um, I do understand it's a major driver into the red or, or the blue camp, and yeah. it's been controversial as well. And uh, maybe we can touch base on the come back to that term Janus again, sure. and not the Roman pagan god, <laughs> but the Supreme Court decision <laughs> Janus, which was related to public employee unions and and so forth. Um, but um, so so it is to a large extent economically driven, um, and we have a state like Texas, which um, has a big oil and gas component. It's, it's the refineries and a lot of the other stuff that goes with it, I suppose, because I, I, I assume that uh, with the oil and gas business, there's a lot of machine tooling that goes with that business as well. That's right. Um, and, and those related industries. Um, California is traditionally a big, big agricultural state. We, we forget that. Um, and it's, uh, I, I think, Fresno County, um, in terms of value of agricultural uh, output, uh, is the biggest producer by county in the, in the country, probably the world. Um, and, and then, of course, Texas is very famous, uh, at least from the cattle mm -hmm. standpoint. Uh, and if you're east of a certain line, I suppose, uh, east of the, uh, of the hill country, okay. uh, you know, you have the agricultural area. But did, did, does, does the agricultural economic base in the states play much of a impact on uh, political thinking in either state these days? Yeah, so I, I would say the, the agricultural sector in California has been a largely conservative sector, and it was part of basically the, the um, <clears throat> Republican coalition for a big part of the, of the 20th century. Uh, there, were, there were a lot of fights over agricultural labor relations in the, the 20th century. So Cesar Chavez and the United Farm Workers up against the major growers. Right. Uh, part, of, part of the agricultural sort of in, uh, ecosystem in California is that we have very large scale agriculture as, a, as opposed to the small family farm. And it's, and it's highly productive. It contributes a lot to the state economy. Mm. Uh, but there aren't as many farmers as, you know, potential constituents, voters, uh, voting block uh, in California, as you might guess, based on the agricultural productivity of, of the state. Um, one other thing I would mention, just in terms of um, uh, what a California industry that we don't think about much about is actually the oil industry. California, at the beginning of the 20th century, was the world's largest oil producer uh, before, oh. before Texas. Uh, Gain that title, well, who, who and then do, later Saudi Arabia. <laughs> and, but if, I mean, if, if you if you live in S Southern California, you you, <laughs> you can see still, it's Pump Jack still in in places like Brea and, and Orange County, and and right. uh, um, you know in Long Beach there were a, a lot, but the, the biggest oil producing region is um, up in Kern County around Bakersfield and and such, and, and that's still producing oil, but the the, the policies of the state of California. Do not encourage uh, the continued development of that sector, as opposed to Texas, where uh, the state government absolutely does encourage uh, the oil industry. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it, it you know it seems to me that um, Texas uh, has been very successful in terms of diversifying its energy, and my primary basis for speaking on that subject is the winter uh, winter or so mm -hmm. ago 
when Texas had an abnormally cold spell and all the wind turbines shut down. And, uh, and I think that I, and probably a lot of other people like that, uh, were shocked. Because yep. I assume that all of uh, the electrical get in, grid in Texas was generated through uh, some type of fossil fuel. Uh, but it turns out that's just not not the case. Um, so has there been a public policy in Texas that it is to diversify um, into renewable uh, sources of energy? Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the Texas economy used to be much more heavily dependent on oil and gas. And um, in general, the economy is diversified. But in the energy sector, Absolutely. Uh, going back to when George W. Bush was governor right. of, of Texas, uh, he encouraged uh, the development of um, alternative energy. And it's really been a little bit through public policy, but it's really been more through market uh, incentives that Texas happens to have a lot of sunshine and a lot of wind, especially West Texas. Mm -hmm. And it's economically profitable to build wind turbines and solar pan and install solar panels and generate electricity at a rate that can be uh, economically profitable. So it hasn't been through mandates by state government as much as it's been through the private sector seeing an economic opportunity and moving into it. And it's been remarkable. Texas but would is, that be the old traditional capitalist? That's the uh, capitalist, right, so yeah. uh, you know, profit. <laughs> it's the profit motive driving yes. uh, a situation where Texas is now the largest wind producer by a, a large margin of any state in the in the union. And that's it's above California. Above California by far, right. And it's, it's moving up in solar as well. Um, there's candidly some pushback in among uh, some conservatives in Texas that it, uh, trying to say, well, maybe we shouldn't be as invested in alternative energy because we, partly because we might end up with these situations like right. with a big freeze a couple of years ago, right. but more generally wanting to protect the oil and gas industry, I think. But I think most of the business interest in Texas embraces the idea of being all energy um, and producing, you know, uh, both in the fossil fuel and also in the alternative renewable energy sectors. So, so it, it would it be a true statement then that um, the electrical grid in Texas has a higher percentage attributable to renewables than California does? Yes. Well, yes. In well, in terms of percentage, because they produce high at all levels. <laughs> uh, we, we actually don't, we don't produce enough electricity to um, uh, supply our needs in the state. We have to import electricity from out of state into California, whereas Texas is a net exporter, right? Um, and so they produce a lot of electricity and energy generally. And in absolute terms, Texas produces more renewable energy in terms of percentages. I'm not quite sure uh, where it would fit. How did California get in the position where we have to buy our electricity from other states? Uh, well, there's a demand, which is people want the lights to turn on, right? right? And they, we, we need electricity. And we have chosen not to produce in various different ways. So what are the various ways that electricity is produced in the state? Um, historically, through fossil fuels, right. uh, and that's increasingly um, the state is wanting to shut down those sources of electricity. The second source is hydroelectric, and we do have large dams that produce sure. some, some uh, electricity, but 
there's been no construction of new dams in the state. A third and, and huge source has been nuclear reactors, and we used to have three large ones, we're down to one, uh, and that's slated to be shut down. And for a generation or more, we've built new, no new nuclear reactors. And so what are we, so we're relying on a diminishing number of power sources, and we have uh, a large population that needs electricity, so that's why we have to import. Well, it, it, it does strike me as odd that we have a political philosophy that in California that uh, restricts the use of fossil fuels to produce electricity and also uh, nuclear fission to produce electricity, but as a result, we're having to go outside the state to buy it, uh, which means that some other state is probably producing it through fossil fuels or, or, or nuclear fission. But to the California consumer, I suspect it probably means that the California consumer is paying a higher price for that electricity. Well, we, we pay way more for electricity than um, most other places. Um, and it's, it's supply and demand, right? If we were generating better supply, if we had uh, um, more nuclear plants or, or whatever source, then that could bring electric rates, electricity rates down, but we don't. We're, I mean, the, the philosophy of state policymakers is that we need to move to all renewable and they don't count uh, nuclear as being a renewable energy source. Uh, and so the policy is toward more wind and solar, which are the, the two primary sources. And that it's great as far as it goes. I mean, I put solar panels on my home and I'm, I'm happy with that, right? And a lot right. of people are doing that. It's becoming a larger percentage, but it's it's not sufficient actually, especially if we're moving to a total electrification of our entire economy right. so that all vehicles in the near future need to be electricity driven as opposed right. to by fossil. We're, we need a source for that and we just don't have sufficient production of electricity either now or in the foreseeable future to meet that demand. And so we are having to go to other sources out of state and that's not economically efficient or um, even environmentally efficient because as you say, a lot of that out of state electricity is produced by um, non-renewable sources. Well, bear with me for a moment uh, because I'm intrigued, if maybe troubled by this because here we have Texas uh, large part of the economy is driven by the gas and oil sector, but yet they produce far more electricity from renewable, renewables than California does. And California, through its politics, wants to produce electricity through renewable, renewables, but it's a fraction of what is produced by renewables in Texas. That strikes me as being mismanagement politically. Yeah. Well, there, <laughs> there's, there's complications because people in principle like renewables, they like right. wind energy, but right. a lot of people don't want windmills off the coast of Santa Monica or Malibu or, you know, the, the California coast beautiful. Is, is beautiful, beautiful. right? And, and Texas doesn't have that concern. West Texas, wide open spaces, not a lot yeah. of people out there. So it's easy to put up a lot of very large turbines that can generate wind energy, and there's not a lot of pushback on that. In California, no matter the energy source, there's going to be um, some pushback in terms of the aesthetics or the environmental impact of solar panels or wind turbines or, or nuclear uh, reactors or whatever, right? So it's, it's, a, 
it's a difficult thing to uh, achieve in California is meeting the energy needs uh, and also meeting these other uh, desirables. It seems to me that there's competing ideologies in California that are butting heads. We need the electricity, and as long as we can source it outside the state, we get by with it, even though the people at the lower end of the economic scale are the ones who pay the penalty because they have to pay more for electricity, although that's another issue that's coming up before the PUC, which... <laughs> yeah, I, so, that, I, I mean, that's... that's an, it's, 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 the conflict is that... Um, for on a lot of these policies, the, the, the progressive ideology, which promotes things like um, environmentalism or uh, you know labor rights or things like that, um, one can be on board for that. But if you think about cumulatively what the economic impact is, it oftentimes can just raise the cost overall of goods and services in California and makes it prohibitively expensive for working class people and poor people to live in this state without subsidies from the government. And so you get into this kind of cycle right. where it's too expensive to live here unless the government um, subsidizes you. And the more gov government subsidies there are, the more expensive government is and it needs further revenues. And it's, it's, a, it's a different model than sort of the low cost model that uh, Texas or other red states pursue. Well, the reference I had to the PUC, the Public Utilities Commission in, in California, I think the state legislature a couple of years ago uh, charged the PUC with creating a charging mechanism that isn't based upon consumption only, but in, includes a, an extra tax based upon uh, income or wealth. I'm not sure whether it's a combination of income and wealth. Yeah. Or, or, or both, or, or one or the other. Yeah, um, so it's, it's essentially a socialization of uh, electricity bills so that everybody would pay sort of a big, a, an opening rate for uh, electricity that would be based on their, I can't remember whether it's income or wealth, um, right. and then there'd be a, a sort of a, a, a rate uh, fee on top of that. But poor people would start at a much lower base rate and, and wealthier people with a higher base rate. So if... if um you know, if, if I had a, if someone has a typical family, uh, well, no, there are no typical families anymore, but let's say it's a family of four living in a 2,000 square foot home, um, electricity usage, uh, let's, let's just pick up that home and transport it uh, from uh, Los Angeles to, uh, let's say, Dallas-Fort Worth, mm -hmm. uh, how, how much less would that family expect to pay uh, percentage-wise for electrical use? Yeah, I don't know the current figures, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's half the, the utility bill in in Texas that it would be in in California. Well, that's shocking, actually. That's, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, well, you know, we all may be saved by fusion, uh, <laughs> and uh, I love to uh, hear every year there's an update about some remarkable new advance in fusion and. I think the old line is that we're only 15 years away from having a commercially viable fusion reaction, and we'll always be 15 That's years right. away from That's having right. it. But uh, uh, and uh, you know, the, I, I guess then a question with fusion, you know, if uh, you know, would it have any um, political headwinds? Because most of us think of fusion in the same terms as fission. Fission is a heavy uh, element. Fusion is a light element. Uh, but yet you don't have meltdowns with fusion. You don't right. have that same level of radioactivity. Um, 
so raises the question, would there be any uh, environmental opposition to, you know, if we do develop fusion commercial reactors, uh, you know, where would the political opposition on an environmental or public health safety come yeah, from? Yeah, I'm not an expert on fusion, but as I understand it, it doesn't have the, the negative externalities of, right. of fission, that both the, the, the danger of a meltdown, which I think is relatively remote, but also the real problem of disposal of uh, spent nuclear uh, It just energy. becomes helium, doesn't it? Uh, that's that's so. right. So that you, it's, you know, it is sort of the magic energy, and unfortunately it's always 15 years away, right? Uh, so is, is, I, is, is helium that gas when you when you suck it that makes you sound like Donald Duck? Or that's, Mickey right, Ma- that's right. So yeah. we'd all just be walking around <laughs> sounding like Mickey Mouse. <laughs> okay. Right, right. That so. would be the fusion meltdown. So. Yeah. Interesting. But, uh, yeah, so that, I mean, that would be the exception. I mean, I think every other energy source, I mean, unless I'm missing something, but uh, every other energy source has uh, uh, sort of negative um, aspects to it in terms of either, uh, well, for example, um, one of the problems with wind and solar, as you know, is that it's in constant in that wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. And so you have these fluctuations and what's really needed is storage, batteries, right? And that hasn't been fully developed. And so... Um, and as I say, there's there's some uh, environmental uh, uh, impacts even to the collection and, and production and distribution with power lines and such of of um, renewable energy. Mm.